Welcome to episode 482 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema, or in this case, genre television of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio, and I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. The music that you're hearing right now is the song Grabbed by the Ghoulies. It is from the new, I guess it's a single, from Underwater Bosses, and you can find them at underwaterbosses.bandcamp.com. This is one of two tracks on their new release. The other track is called The Legnus Monster. You can find them over there at their Bandcamp page, or you can just go straight to underwaterbosses.com. However you get to them, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Big thanks for letting us play their music this week on the show. So, this week's episode is something that I've been looking forward to for a very, very long time. Anytime I can work a conversation in about Robert E. Howard, I'm going to jump at it. So, you know what? I thought, what would be better than, if I want to get my Robert E. Howard on, than to just talk about a Robert E. Howard story? Well, there were no Robert E. Howard films back in the day. However, there was a television program. We're talking about Thriller, which was the excellent anthology series hosted by Boris Karloff, one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio. They adapted the short story, Pigeons from Hell. And I figured, you know what? That's what we're going to talk about, and I'm going to do it with my friend, David Heath. David is also a huge fan of all things Robert E. Howard. We've done panels together over the years. We run in some of the same circles, and, you know, he's a fellow podcaster. He's a fellow, I guess you'd call him a lurker. You know, those of us who go to the Lovecraft Film Festival, we'll talk about that here in a second. He's just a great guy, and he knows his stuff, and we could have talked about Robert E. Howard for days. Not going to make you listen to that podcast here. Instead, you're going to get a efficient conversation about thrillers, pigeons from hell, as well as a few other things Robert E. Howard related. Now, I was shocked when Kenny said he had a segment for his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland that had to do with pigeons from hell, but he found something. He found that this particular episode was mentioned in the magazine. So you're going to hear his amazing look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. That's coming up here soon, too. Now, I mentioned a second ago the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival. This is something that longtime listeners know I look forward to every year. This is one of the highlights of, well, living in this area, really. I mean, it's something that I look forward to. It's something that I love, and it's something that I'm going to miss this year because with everything going on, they are going virtual. There will not be a physical film festival or Cthulhu Con this time around. There will be a virtual screening or two or three or four. I'm not sure exactly how they're going to put it together yet. And I don't know if there's going to be panels or Q&As or anything like that, like they've done in the past as well. I just know that uh, we will not have that in-person community that we normally have down at the Hollywood Theater the first weekend of October. I'll keep you guys and gals posted about that because as much as it's disappointing that the festival will not happen in the physical form that we're used to, because it's going to be virtual, it means even more people can take part in at least watching some of the fun movies, feature length, short films, documentaries, whatever that they bring in. And we're trying to come up with some pretty neat extra things on the side to coincide with the Kickstarter campaign that they'll be launching to finance this virtual film festival. Again, as I get more information, I'll make sure you guys and gals get that information as well. There will also be a link in the show notes to the HP Lovecraft Film Festival over at our website, 
which is monsterkidradio.net. Also on our website, you're going to find our contact information where you can email me about anything that you've heard here on the show over at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or if you want, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Also, check this out. I just appeared on somebody else's podcast, Steve Turek, friend of the show. If you've been to Monster Bash, you know this guy. He is always there willing to help anybody out, make sure everybody's having a good time. And he's not really even associated with the Bash. He's just another fan like us. And he's another podcaster with his children, Ben and Michaela. The podcast is called the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. And I just appeared in episode 27, where I got with the three of them. And all four of us talked about a Jim Kelly film, Black Samurai. Ah, uh, yeah, that was so much fun. I think I might have broke one of them, maybe. You'll have to go listen to the show to find out. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. But really, Google is your friend. Diecast Movie Review Podcast? It's going to be hard to miss. There's a lot to get to in this episode of the show, so let's just roll right into it right now. Come early, beat the crowds, it's breaking records everywhere. Trapped. 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 <laughs> They're trapped in a whirlpool of shrieking fear. From the most fiendish idea ever conceived by the human brain. The brainiac. And it has a friend. She was beautiful. Desirable and not altogether human. The curse of the crying women. Together they will trap you in a world of horror. But if you live through it, you will never forget. The Brainiac and the Curse of the Crying Women. some doors that should never be opened. One of them is the door to the shuttered room. I wouldn't take her into that old house, mister. Lesson you want her to end up like this. The terror begins on the road to the house with the shuttered room. There's no hope for Susanna if she spends even one night in that house. Why, um, detect a threat there somewhere? Did you feel it? Feel what? When you opened that door, it was like I was standing in front of a refrigerator. The terror is a touch. A sound. A sense of someone watching that stains two people with 
the secret of what lies in the shuttered room and beyond. Please, let me go. I have to see my husband. Well, what's wrong with staying right here and passing the time of day with me? Hey, Chief. That sure is a lovely wife you got there. And you know, I hear tell she's just as pretty all over. You wouldn't happen to know what your wife's doing right now, would you? Hey, maybe Ethan knows what this guy's wife's doing. Maybe this guy's wife knows what Ethan is doing. Because maybe they're doing the same thing together. Wait a minute. Let me help you. One night in the house with the shuttered room. And you may never want to sleep again. What number is this? What am I calling? You are in the feedback section of the show. We've got an email from listener of the show, Michael from Wilmington, North Carolina. Hello, Derek. I've got a signal boost for a pen and paper role-playing game Kickstarter you and the Monster Kids might think is cool. They came from beyond the grave. It's a role-playing game based on Hammer and Amicus-era horror movies. It looks pretty cool, and previous work by this company has been top notch. They also have an expansion book for the 1950s era called They Came From Beneath the Sea that covers all the slimy lagoon dwellers you could ask for. I'm pulling up my credit card tonight. I thought this would be right up your alley. He also goes on to say that he's been watching the Saturday streams, the Monster Movie Kid Club over on Twitch, and that they've been a welcome relief from working in healthcare these days. Thanks for all the hard work. P.S. Also, if you're looking for new content to expand the stream, just con Stephen D. Sullivan into running the chill RPG so you can play Mark Temple. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. First of all, they came from beyond the grave. Looks like a lot of fun. I don't know how many of you guys and gals are gamers. If you've done Dungeons and Dragons or, or anything like that, or maybe any superhero games or anything, but I used to be a gamer. I haven't played a game in a long time. I haven't rolled the dice in a long time when it comes to role-playing games anyway, but I went and I checked this out and it looks pretty darn cool. So it is something that I'm going to be paying attention to. It doesn't fund for another 21 days. I think this looks really neat. And then the comment that he made about Steve Sullivan and the chill RPG. We've talked about this with Steve on the show in the past. He used to work for pace setter games and Pacesetter Games is one of the companies that, or was the company that published the first edition of the Chill RPG, which is a modern-day role-playing game in which the characters fight monsters. It's fun. It's awesome. It inspired a video project of mine way back in the day in community college, which would have been... No, oh dear God, Zella 3, carry the one divided by at least 30 years ago. That's nuts. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's, it's always fun just to kind of think about that. One of these days, I'm going to find that video, and I'm going to put it up online for people to see. Or maybe I'll play it during the stream. He mentioned the stream. Go to monsterkidmovie.club on Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific for the pre-show, and then around noon, the movies start, and they run for at least seven, eight hours. The way I've been doing it lately, and the way I'm going to do it again this weekend, is we're going to have some scheduled movies. 
including chapters 4 and 5 of the Phantom Creeps serial, Werewolf of Washington, The Manster, just all sorts of cool stuff. But at the end of the night, we do a secret screening. Well, what's the movie going to be? It's a secret. I can't tell you. You're just going to have to come on over to watch it with us in the stream. It's totally free to watch. And then on Tuesday, we've been doing the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, where we do a shorter version of this. We start at 4 p.m. Pacific with a pre-show around 3.30 or so, and it's at least two science fiction movies. Again, it's all classic material stuff that Monster Kids would dig. It's just been a lot of fun to kind of expand what we do on Twitch. If you want to go old school and just go straight through Twitch, go to twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. Thank you for writing in, Michael. I appreciate all of this and giving me somewhere to kind of jump off from to talk a little bit more about what's going on with the stream. The other bit of feedback that I got was an email from Dr. Tong, Mark Peterson, and he sent me a link to saveyourcinema.com. And this is basically a change.org petition type site where we are petitioning the government to help make sure that funds are being made available for the business owners that run movie theaters so these movie theaters can continue to exist and be there for us once we're through the corona apocalypse. It has to do with the Restart Act, and I'm not going to pretend to know everything about it. I'm not going to pretend to talk politics here because politics, but check it out if you're interested. Go over to saveyourcinema.com. They even have a form letter all ready to go. Just copy and paste, and you can send this message straight off to your congresspeople. So check that out. And Mark, thanks for sending that in. I know that we've talked about Mark coming back on the show with the Dr. Tongue segment. With everything going on, it's kind of hard for him to do what he needs to do to keep his business going while helping to support us here on the show. And I totally get it. But Mark, anytime you want to come back, you are more than welcome. I mentioned it at the top of the show. I'll mention it here again. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com if you want to email us. Or if you want to call and leave us a voicemail, just go to 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Listen. Do you hear? It's coming back. Turning the screen into a buzzing, crawling, creeping nightmare of terror. <laughs> this is the son of the original fly, daring to explore the forbidden science of transmigration that brought horrible death to his father. You look as if you've just seen a ghost, old man. It was the fly. Fear that will fasten its choking grip on you as his weird experiments spawn the twisted monstrosities of a living hell. The rat man whose hands and feet are changed to paws. The living corpse who rose from his coffin. And the return of the fly, seeking revenge with a thousand eyes smashing anything that stands in his way. Suppose he does come here. What if Philippe does not have the mind of a human, but the murderous brain of the fly? Then he will have to be destroyed.
You know, have you ever noticed that the food right here at this concession stand at the Skyland Drive-In Theater is so much better than what you're going to bring from home or buy on the way to the drive-in? I want to tell you something. You can come in our concession stand here and get the experience of a lifetime, an atmosphere that's unlike any other you're going to find anywhere else because the food's all part of the fun when you come to the drive-in movie. Come on down. We got lines are short right now, and the restrooms are right around the corner. Got all kind of soft drinks here. Fresh from the fountain, Coca-Cola. We got Fanta orange, grape, strawberry, and don't forget we got Sprite too. And we have delicious coffee and hot chocolate for the adults out there. Your favorite candy bars are here. We got Baby Ruth, Zagnut, Zeros, Chicken Dinner, Bit of Honey, Snickers, Milky Way, and all are only 15 cents. The concession stand's open. Come on down and have some fun and get some good food for the family. Let's have some more music for you right now. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we're looking at the thriller episode, Pigeons from Hell. Thriller was covered in an article from FM 138, which was dated October of 1977, in an article entitled The Golden Years of Terrorvision, written by Ronald Waite. It began with this. Thriller, 1960-1962, was and is my all-time favorite horror show. The sets, the mood, the makeup, and the plots were all superb. Hosted by Boris Karloff, the critics of that time said, we'd rather see someone like Hitchcock as the host. Karloff is too sinister. I disagree. When he sat there introducing the night stars and he said, as sure as my name's Boris Karloff, this is a thriller, I knew I was in for a shock. Every Tuesday night at 9 o'clock, I'd sit glued to the TV set. By 10, I was usually frightened out of my wits for this was surely one of the scariest shows ever made. The article continues with a look at the writer's four favorite episodes, including two starring William Shatner. The section on Thriller concludes with this. Boris Karloff appeared in several episodes, including The Prediction, where he played a character named Clayton Mace, The Premature Burial as Dr. Throne, The Last of the Somervilles as Dr. Farnham, Dialogues with Death, a two-part drama, and one of my favorites, The Incredible Dr. Marquesan as Dr. Conrad Marquesan. This was a bizarre tale of zombies and revenge, very well done with impressive sets and makeup. Thriller, as I said, was truly one of the greatest shows on television. The script for Pigeons from Hell was based on a short story by pulp writer Robert E. Howard, who is most famous for the character Conan the Barbarian. Conan first appeared in FM60 from December of 1969, without a mention of Howard, via an ad for paperback books sold by Captain Company. Conan, the most fantastic fantasy hero in fiction. Ten super great titles. Thrill to the most savage battles of fantasy adventure's mightiest hero, Conan, the Barbarian King. A powerful giant driven by animal lust, he braved the savagery of enemy hordes and sinister magic with a fierceness that knows no equal in adventure fiction. Get these triumphant epics of sword and sorcery. Order your copies by coupon. Conan's first screen appearance was previewed in FM 179 from November of 1981 with a picture and this brief text. Irresistible, indestructible, incredible. Conan, king, barbarian, swashbuckler. 
he was a barbarian in the time of the Hyborian Age, in a period which lay between the glory of Atlantis and the recorded history of the modern world. As a youthful adventurer, he began his heroic ascent to a position of gigantic stature in the legendary lands of the ancient eastern hemisphere of Earth. Robert E. Howard, the creator of the character Conan, who flourished in the 30s of legendary fantasy magazine Weird Tales, lived and died without probably ever dreaming in his vivid imagination that one day his warrior of antiquity would become a modern movie hero. But there's every indication that muscles are in, and this Christmas Conan will be muscling his way in between such already established heroes of the past, present, and future as Superman, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, James Bond, and Tarzan. Before long, every schoolboy and schoolgirl will be able to spell Schwarzenegger as well as a college graduate. Knock knock. Who's there? Ice cream. Ice cream who? Ice cream Conan. Editor Ackerman was last seen running that way with a roaring barbarian in pursuit. A full-blown article about Conan the Barbarian appeared in issue 185 from July of 1982. It included this information about its literary source as well as a full synopsis. Conan was born in the pages of Weird Tales magazine in 1932 in a story by a young Texan named Robert E. Howard. From 1932 to his untimely suicide at age 30 in 1936, Howard penned some 18 Conan stories. After his death, they saw spotty publication until the mid-60s. It was then that Conan's popularity rose with the publication of a series of paperback books, edited and augmented by news stories by Lynn Carter and L. Sprague de Camp and they have seen almost continuous publications through the 70s. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Changed it up a little bit this time around. Instead of doing the music from a random 1940s public domain horror film, I decided to play some music that was a little bit more appropriate for Conan. I can't think of Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian without thinking about the film score for the original Conan the Barbarian film, and you just heard an arrangement of that music by the Celestial Eon Project. Kenny, thank you for putting that together. I am such a fan of all things Robert E. Howard. I'm not going to get into it too much right now. However, if you go over to the show notes at monsterkidradio.net, I will put up a list of everything that you can get your hands on through Amazon if you are interested in reading more about Robert E. Howard. The books that Kenny mentioned that were for sale through the Captain Company, the ones that have the editions and the edits by El Sprague de Camp and all those, those are okay to kind of get into Howard fandom. They're not awful, but they do have some editions that a lot of Howard scholars and purists and fans who have gone on to read the original stories have problems with. If you have those books, great. But I'm going to make sure there are links to some of the collections that have been released over the years that are just straight publications of his original transcripts. No adding anything to it. No editing this or that out. Just his straight up stories, his poetry, all of it. His work has meant so much to me over the years. I hope if you're a fan of Robert E. Howard... You enjoy what David and I are going to talk about here in a second. Kenny, thanks again for all your hard work. I appreciate it, my man. Thank you. A house of high fashion, a dazzling whirl of elegance, of exotic, extravagant beauties. An adventurous journey into the devastating allure of the most sophisticated women and their intimate secrets. Suddenly, these lace curtains ignite a drama that will lacerate your emotions. 
blood and black lace. <coughs> who is this shrouded, sadistic, sordid fiend who maims and murders? Why this bloodthirsty orgy, this holocaust of lives? Blood and black lace in bleeding color. For shattering, shivering, shocking experience. The room was quiet. Had it been a nightmare? What woke him? Was the candle in the antique mirror moving? Was there something standing by the curtains? Was he mad? The Crimson Cult. So terrifying they won't let us tell you about it here. She'd wandered alone. The passageway between the walls was damp and musty. She dropped her candle. And then I heard it. Now she has no head. It happened in Horror House. I was there. A nightmare combination of shock and terror. And you're invited behind forbidden doors. Horror House stars Frankie Avalon and Jill Hayworth. The Crimson Cult features Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee. See them together for the first time. But don't see them alone. Rated GP. Hi, this is Sarah Karloff, and you're listening to Monster Kid Radio. This is Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Listeners, I've had this guy on the show before, but only in like group settings, like when I go to the Lovecraft Film Festival or to a movie screening, I get him on the mic. But this is the first time we're doing a one-on-one traditional MKR episode with my friend, David Heath. Welcome to the show, sir. How are you doing? I am very excited to be here, and I am very excited about what we're going to be talking about. I know that the topic, uh, specifically the author, is a topic that we could talk about for hours. We have a little bit, like at the Lovecraft Film Festival and that sort of thing. And we'll talk a little bit about the author. In January, we did a panel together about one of the author's creations. That's right, we did. That was what? That was... Wizard World PDX. And I still have that footage around here somewhere. Uh, I have recently rearranged my workspace, and I'm not able to find all my SD cards right now, but I did record that panel, so maybe you'll see it at some point. I think your uh, family also recorded some video of that, so there, there should be some record of that at some point. So stay tuned. Uh, I'm excited. <laughs> so since we've spoken in person and seen each other, and it's been a while because of everything going on in the world right now, you've got a podcast. Yes, I do. 
In fact, it's called Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, and it takes place, mainly it's me and maybe a few other people talking about, you know, comic books, pop culture, you know, pulp literature. But the working sort of premise is that there is a farmer named Dave who's not me, but a lot like me, who finds an underground Illuminati base under his goat farm. And I think we'll have one out coming out soon that I think you might be interested in. It's going to be our Star Trek special. Oh, yes. It's three parts. The first part is about the Robert Block episodes of the original Star Trek series. Oh, Dave, get out of my head, man. I've been planning an episode like that myself. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. And then... The That's next, all right. It's all good. The next one is about Star Trek, the animated series, which I remember watching in the 70s as a kid. As far as I'm concerned, that stuff is canon. I love the animated series. And, and, and I think three years of the TV show, two years of the animated, that's the five years right there. There you go. And then the third part is, air quotes, fiction, unquote, about a red shirt that was used on the TV series that caused a curse and all the extras that wore it died terrible, horrible ways. Okay. So yeah, that's... that's You've got my interest. You've got my interest. I mean, I've been listening anyway, but you've got my interest for sure. We're not as professional and worried about due dates as you guys are, but it should be out in about a week or so. And is that still something that you're producing with uh, D.B. Spitzer over the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos? Absolutely, yes. Is that where people can find the podcast right now? Or is there a separate site for yeah, it? Or where do people go? That is probably the best or on his sort of parallel Black Clock audio tales. Okay. And I do play promos for Black Clock as well as the People's Guide here on the show. So I'll make sure I drop those promos into this episode so people can at least find that website. If the computer gods are smiling on you, you can type Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans and usually find it somewhere in Google. You mean there's more than one result for searching for Dave Underground Goat Shenanigans? And trust me, you don't want to look at the other ones. Okay, enough said. And trying to get those images out of my head right now. That part might get edited. <laughs> Probably not. Dave, we have traveled in the same circles for a long time. And when we go to conventions, we inevitably end up talking about something. Something exciting and interesting to both of us. Whether it's the author of the short story that originated the thing we're talking about this time around. Listen, I don't know why we're dancing around it. It's in the show notes. We're talking about Robert E. Howard stuff. So you and I always end up talking about Howard somewhere. And I think the next time I see you, we'll probably end up talking about Howard again, as well as maybe like government conspiracies when it comes to flying saucers. Uh, but yeah, Robert E. Howard's going to be at the top of the list. I mean, you and I both love Howard. Is he your favorite writer? I don't have a favorite writer per se. I have ones that I love and I would put him up on the top. Yes. And let me tell you how I got introduced to, to Howard. That's exactly where I was going with this. I want to know about your background with Howard. Well, okay. So I'll tell you the story, and I think it'll explain things better. I was always, ever since I was 13, a big H.P. Lovecraft fan. And as Robert E. Howard, I kind of knew who he was. I knew Conan, but I didn't really consciously, if I'd read anything, I didn't remember it until I was in college. And when I would get depressed, or not depressed, but overwhelmed, I would go to this local bookstore and I would just say, oh, you know, I, I calm down, I relax by looking at his books. And I came across a book by David Drake, who I loved. He, he was mainly a 
combat science fiction writer who did um, Hammer Slammers. And he had a book called Cthulhu the Mythos and Kindred Horrors, which was basically a horror writing of Robert E. Howard. And, and I opened it up and I read the first paragraph and it talks about this dark life that Howard lived. And it talks about how he you know, committed suicide in the first paragraph. And it got me. At college, I didn't have a lot of money, but I, I went and I bought this book. So in ways, David Drake introduced me to Robert E. Howard. You know, he was comparing it, and I know that I'm going to do this, compare him to Lovecraft. And, but he said, you know, maybe Drake says, Lovecraft, maybe he wrote, you know, for the eternities. But Howard wrote for the masses. And that's the way my sort of relationship is. I'm the masses. I'm the person that Robert E. Howard was writing for. Yeah, Howard definitely was. Uh, I'm going to make my living being a writer, and uh, if that means I'm cranking out stories for the masses, that's what it means. I mean, he cared about literature. He cared about word choice and, and the art and the craft of writing, but he also cared about getting paid. So, <laughs> uh, and, and fortunately, those two things worked together for him. Wait, yeah. Because I relate more to Howard than I do Lovecraft. I relate more to Howard than I do Faulkner or, or, or Hemingway because I relate to him as sort of a person-to-person level because of that. Does that make sense? No, it totally does. Howard always seems like the guy that I'm not a drinker or anything like that, and I think politically we would not get along, but I'd still like to hang out with the guy. Lovecraft would be somebody I'd want to visit. Okay. Howard be somebody I'd, I'd go on an adventure with him. Robert E. Howard's going to have the best barbecue. Uh, it's kind of lost on me too, but I oh. totally hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. He'd probably judge the heck out of me for wanting to do like veggie dogs and such, but still, mm. yeah, he'd be great to hang out with, uh, have a meal with. Whereas Lovecraft, you go visit for an afternoon and you're good. Yeah. Whereas Howard, yeah. Top in the car. Let's go have an adventure. Let's go somewhere and just listen to you. Tell the tales, man. And that's it. I think maybe that's it. He's I'm not, really a writer. I'm not a podcaster. I'm a storyteller. And in that way, I link with Howard. He's a storyteller too. Oh yeah. And if you look at his upbringing, sitting on the porch, hearing the stories of his family and the families around him, again, telling the tales, hearing these stories that had to have influenced the way he approached storytelling, writing, whether it's fiction, short stories, poetry, whatever. And he's a heck of a poet. People, if you've not read Robert E. Howard's poetry, you are missing out. I agree. Something fierce. I definitely agree on that. Man. Uh, Howard is oftentimes considered one of the three musketeers of weird fiction, uh, Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith being the other two. And really, I feel like those three kind of laid the foundation for what we call weird fiction today. Uh, there's a lot of other people that have contributed to the movement as well as people that influenced Lovecraft and Howard and such, sure. But without the three of them, I think genre fiction would look so different. And not just because of the fantasy stuff that Howard did. He's mostly known for Conan, right? I mean, that's kind of how most people knew him for a long time because of the movie and, and the comics and that sort of thing. But he wrote so much more than that. Absolutely. He wrote uh, boxing stories. He wrote Western comedies. Uh, it, yeah, he wrote, he kept jumping from subject to subject which I like. That's yeah. how my mind works, too. Yeah, you know, and, and part of it was because he would follow the market. 
You know, if he's not able to sell a boxing story, well, let's change a couple other names and try to sell it to a men's adventure magazine as a sailor story. Or let's change another name here or there. We can't sell this Brand McMorton story. Well, now it's a Conan story. You know, he really knew how to work and follow the market as well. And I can't think of a genre of his that I've read that I've actively disliked. I've always dug all of it. Even his quote unquote spicy adventures that get a little racy for 1930s. I dig them. Yeah. And I think everybody talks about how influential Lovecraft is. The, what we're going to talk about, the pigeons of hell, Stephen King said that this was, you know, one of the two scariest things that he saw as like a child on TV. And you know what? When I was watching it again, I could see how this influences Stephen King. Oh, this is so Stephen King. I know Stephen King likes to put in like little homages and such to some Lovecraft. I mean, you, you can't read the Dark Tower series without seeing little bits and pieces here of some Lovecraft stuff. There's a short story that takes place, uh, I think, in the UK, and there's an underground station that's a reference to something Lovecraftian or Quarter Macyan, whatever. Yeah. He loves Lovecraft. But I, I can see Howard really having a huge impact on Stephen King, who is also a storyteller. He's oftentimes referred to himself as like the fast food, the Big Mac and fries of literature. He's just a storyteller. He just kind of opens a vein, puts out the words, and there you go. And I feel like Howard did the same. I really see some connections there. And I agree with you about this particular adaptation of Pigeons from Hell. It feels very Stephen King. Very Stephen King in a good way. It's got a better ending than Stephen King would have come up with. <laughs> I, I definitely think it influenced him. When I first discovered Howard, I think I knew what Conan was. I remember vaguely being at a friend's house when I was a kid. Uh, my family was visiting another family, and Conan came on the TV. And it was in the middle of the day, so it must have been a cable station, uh, like, an, like a showtime or something. And my friend's parents told my parents that there was something coming up that I wasn't allowed to see. So they made me look away. And being a kid, it's like, okay, whatever. And I just went and started doing something else. I learned later when I finally watched the movie, it's when Conan is presented with the naked woman. Okay. <laughs> they didn't want me seeing that as a little kid. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Conan was in the Marvel comics and that sort of thing. But my real introduction to Howard came in high school uh, in my creative writing class, uh, my creative writing teacher, Mr. Bill Roberts, who is the man, introduced me to so many amazing things. He's the guy that taught me how to play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, <laughs> he swore me to secrecy to never really tell anybody, but that was over 20 years ago. So I think the statute of limitations is is uh, out there. Um, but he also introduced me to Robert E. Howard. And at that point in Howard scholarly circles... The only real biography about Howard was the one that was written by Els Camp, mm. which implies all sorts of things about Howard's relationship with his mother, his mental state. He was a crazy person, that sort of thing. And that's what Mr. Roberts believed because that's all that was out there. Now, since then, there's been a lot of material that disputes a lot of that, uh, as well as some really good biography works, biographical works by people like Mark Finn, who really wrote the text on all things Howard. There are tons of groups online that have come together. Uh, there are, are zines. Uh, Ray Hoopa is one of the organizations. Uh, and It's like an amateur press group. Uh, there, there's all sorts of just amazing places to learn about the real Howard. And the more I learn about the real Howard, the more I am fascinated by this guy. Oh, absolutely. In 30 short years, he impacted so much in pop culture. I don't think people sometimes realize Conan predates Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien knew about Conan. 
he had commented, or there was a letter or something, I remember doing some research, and I saw somewhere where Tolkien was referencing Robert E. Howard. He wasn't a big fan, but he knew that Conan was there. Yeah. And I feel like if we didn't have Conan, maybe the pumps wouldn't have been primed right for Lord of the Rings to become the thing that it was. You, you know, you never know how it might have influenced him. I can't think that it didn't. I mean, I think we're all kind of influenced by all the media that we consume, whether we mean to be or not. But I've always viewed Howard as probably one of the most important figures in fantasy fiction out there. Oh, absolutely. So the story we're talking about today, it's Pigeons from Hell. It is one of his contemporary horror stories. Now, Howard and Lovecraft knew each other. And Lovecraft famously allowed people to play with his concepts and his quote-unquote mythos. Important note, Lovecraft never called it the Cthulhu mythos. That was something that August Durleth came up with later on. But Lovecraft didn't care. If somebody wanted to talk about Cthulhu, Nihilarotep, or any of the other outer, you know, all that stuff, it was okay. And Howard would oftentimes write stories referencing some of those things and would create things in his own stories that Lovecraft would use. And then just kind of back and forth. It was a very fluid sharing of information. And I feel like that once Howard and Lovecraft started communicating, Howard started writing these horror stories that are just visceral. And I, isn't it Stephen King that called it like written by thunder, like reading thunder or something along those lines? I think so. And, and definitely Howard borrowed stuff from Lovecraft, but he gave Lovecraft one of the things he's most famous for. And that's Arkham Sanitarium. That first appears in a Robert E. Howard story, not a Lovecraft story. I was going to bring that up because you've mentioned that on a panel that I was on with you. Yes. You know, Arkham, big part of the Batman mythos at this point. No Howard, no Arkham, no Harley Quinn. You know, I mean, all, all these things, you can look and draw these connections. Exactly. And and just I, I just want to say it because, you know, my chance here, we lost one of the greatest this week with Denny O'Neill. He's the one who oversaw the Arkham Asylum in the Batman mythos. And he's the one, you know, that, that agreed this is the name we're going to use. And he, he loved the pulps. You know, that one conversation I had with him, he just, he just stood up and he like grew two or three inches when he was talking about the pulps. So again, yeah, influence. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that as well, because on that panel you mentioned speaking to him and, and actually getting that information directly from the creator of, or the person overseeing the, the creation of that particular comic. It's just fascinating to see how everything kind of stretches out and goes back to Howard. For me, that, that speaks volumes. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, don't think, I don't think outside of Howard Scholars, people just realize how influential he is. Fascinating stuff. I, I do remember maybe a good seven or eight years after I graduated high school and I had started reading more Howard. I went back to my home, quote unquote hometown and visited with my creative writing teacher um, who insisted at that point that I just call him Bill. But, you know, you can't you call him Mr. Roberts for so many long years. It's so hard. But uh, and I started talking Howard and I, I learned quickly that I knew more about Howard at that point than he did. So it was a weird kind of role reversal where I'm sitting there telling him stuff about Howard and Lovecraft and, you know, they got along and this was this and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And blah, blah. just, it was a really interesting experience. I bet. <laughs> and now the student has become the master. No, just. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I want to talk some more about this particular story and, and specifically we we're going to talk about the episode of Thriller. Uh, and we'll talk about Thriller here in a second, but my man, you know, there's something we got to do. The classic. Bye. Yeah, and this is something that you told me before we started recording. 
you've never done this. I've never had my deck of cards with me when we sit down at Lovecraft or at a screening or a panel or whatever. We've never played the Classic Five. I consider myself a pretty smart person. It is absolutely true that you have forgotten more about, you know, classic horror movies than I will ever know. And, you know, there are so many other people, you know, uh, Dominic, she knows so much more about Batman and vampires than I will. You know, Ken Hite knows much more about literature. So I, I, I have this very sort of, I'm not a poser, but I sort of general background. So I know that there is no wrong answer to these, but that's my goal. I may end up with the first wrong answer. Well, <laughs> I don't know if that's something to shoot for, but okay, fair enough. Wait, wait, um, for listeners who don't know, the Classic Five is a game that we play here on the show. We try to do it with everybody that we record with. It is a literal deck of cards. Give it a good shuffle here. Each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. They're icebreaker questions. There are no wrong answers, David. Okay. Uh, there are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get people talking about monster movies, keep friends talking, making friends, talking about this stuff. It's just a fun little way to pass the time. Are you ready to play, sir? I am ready. All right, here we go. Card number one. Who's your favorite mad scientist? This is going to go into the first mad scientist ever. And that is Hawthorne, Rappuccini's daughter. And Rappuccini is, he is the first mad scientist, as far as I'm concerned, in literature. You might want to argue Pygmalion or something like that, but he's the code of, he is the trope codifier. And I love him as a character. He just wanted to make this creature. He was more that he could create it than trying to take over the world. So I would say Rappuccini is my favorite mad scientist. And you've mentioned this at a panel that I've sat in on before as well. That, and I actually remember writing that down thinking, I need to learn more about this, and then I never did. So thank you for reminding me. It's a good story. Right on. All right, card number two. Favorite Ed Wood film? Oh, no. Are you going to say Plan 9 because you were on Plan 9 by 9? <laughs> no, and, and I like Plan 9. There's nothing wrong with that, man. Although, I'll tell you what I really enjoy. He did a series of commercials for the LA market. And when I saw Plan 9 in the theater, they ran a bunch of them, including this one where this white hat cowboy and this black hat cowboy are facing off to fight. And then they find out there's a boot sale. And so they go off together to buy boots. In hindsight, it's kind of hilarious. And they leave this girl behind. So I kind of like the Ed Wood commercial. I have never seen that. But now as soon as we're done recording, you know I'm going to hop on YouTube and try to find it. So he tried to make a living as making commercial director. And he's, he's got some interesting commercials out there. But in general, I would say definitely Plan 9. Okay. Oh, boy. Card number three, Christopher Lee or Bela Lugosi? So, <laughs> so here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say Christopher Lee because I'm in charge of this meeting at work. And afterwards, I always leave the trivia. And we just went over Christopher Lee trivia, how he could have been an opera singer. You know, they tried to recruit him. Some of his missions are still classified from World War II and afterwards where he went Nazi hunting. So as a human being, there's very few people, if you say Christopher Lee or, that's going to be Christopher Lee. Lugosi was in the Army, too. I mean, he served in the military as well in his homeland. So just, you know. No, oh, sure. No, absolutely. But I don't uh, know. I, well, there are no wrong answers. No wrong answers. <laughs> you know that Christopher Lee was the only person to work on Lord of the Rings that after actually met Tolkien? Yeah, uh, he was a huge fan. Um, 
Lee was a very literate, uh, literature driven guy. Uh, he read Tolkien like once a year, I think I read somewhere. Uh, he read, um, oh boy, Frank Children is going to kill me. The guy who wrote uh, The Devil Rides Out. Wheatley, Dennis Wheatley. He read Dennis Wheatley, and I think he did. He meet Dennis Wheatley as well. But either way, he he would bring these literature, these great pieces of literature, to studios to try to get produced. And uh, yeah, I, I had heard that he had met Tolkien himself, and he was close with the family. Yeah. So there's very few people, you know. You say Christopher Lee or George Washington. I'm probably going to pick Christopher Lee. <laughs> now I want a Mount Rushmore with Christopher Lee on it. Yeah. Christopher Lee or Teddy Roosevelt, uh, give me some time. i got to think about that one. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> uh, what was that? Was that card number three? That was three. Card number four. Uh, this comes from the Monster Bash expansion deck. Don't worry. You don't have to have gone to Monster Bash to answer this. What classic monster movie would you show as part of a double feature with the original King Kong? Um, my answers tend to be very emotional because of the event. So I would show the original King Kong and then I would show King Kong versus Godzilla. King Kong versus Godzilla. Nothing you've ever seen can equal the thrills of this extraordinary motion picture. Nothing you've ever felt can equal its awesome fury as the mightiest monsters of the ages clash in the battle of the century. It sears the emotions with shock and terror. It staggers the imagination. All new in color. King Kong versus Godzilla. And the reason why I remember going over to one of my friend's house and we were like nine and we were watching this and we all acted it out. And if I could ever have an experience in my life that would bring me back to the time I was nine years old with all my friends acting out King Kong versus Godzilla, I would do it. Wow. And I've mentioned this here on the show. King Kong versus Godzilla was the first one that I sat down to watch start to finish. And I saw it in a theater setting with a group of friends Scott was there. Scott Morris was there and uh, a few other people there. And just the theater was packed and we all had just had a, a grand time watching it. It's a pretty important film for me, too. So interesting choice, man. I like it. The same part, I'm going to say I have an emotional attach to King Kong because the first time I remember seeing it, it was with all my cousins and my grandparents and my parents. So, yeah, I mean, and I love both the movies, but they both have a very emotional connection to me. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. See, no wrong answers. You're doing just fine. Final card. Let's see if you can get this one right. Um, <laughs> comes from the Hammer expansion deck. Peter Cushing is Van Helsing or as Doctor or Professor or Baron Frankenstein? Okay. I'm going to say Van Helsing because this is where I answer wrong. I have not seen the Frankenstein. You've not seen any of the Hammer Frankenstein films? No, I have not. I've seen the, the, I've only seen the, the vampire ones. Interesting. I might have to sit down with you and watch some some classic Hammer Frankenstein because they're they're good, man. If you do, I will make some goat cheese hors d'oeuvres and we can some vegetarian goat cheese <laughs> meals and we will we will snack down. Right on. Well, since you haven't seen any of the Frankenstein films, you know what? I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to draw another card. Okay. We'll call this the bonus card, bonus round. Which movie do you prefer, Tarantula or Them? Again. When I was a kid, oh no, we would act out them. We would act out them. You know, it wasn't we would we would play. You know, sure we played. You know, you know World War II soldiers or something. But we would act out them, and especially because I lived in the greater LA market, 
and them takes place in the L.A. area. So it got shown all the time. And so, yeah, we would act out, you know, on the beach fighting these giant ants. So, again, I have this incredible emotional attachment to them. You know, I think movies tend to do that. If they hit us at just the right time, usually in our youth, they just have this impact on us in ways that reverberate years later. You know, I may have gotten away from a lot of my previous zombie movie loving life, right? But Dawn of the Dead still does something to me yeah. because of when I saw it and what it made me realize and, and that sort of thing. And of course, I grew up a Star Wars kid, you know, and I'm not alone in saying the Star Wars influenced me in a, in a tremendous way. But I think there's something about when you're younger, when you watch these movies, they get inside you and, and they influence you in ways that impact you years down the line. You know, I'm in my late 40s, and I still remember the first time I saw things like Empire Strikes Back, and I would pretend to be an at-at walker, you know, with a little you know, stormtrooper action figure tucked into my shirt collar walking around the backyard. You know, so yeah, I totally get it, man. Yeah, so, so me, it was a, a, a soldier with a flamethrower fighting giant ants. That's awesome. Well, that was the Classic Five, and I think you did just fine, sir. Well, thank you. Watch out for them, a menace never known to man or beast before, an endless horde of crawling, crushing, gigantic creatures, so horrifying there was no word to describe them. Watch out for them. Watch out for Warner Brothers' screaming new shock sensation, them. Yes, I saw them. They were huge and scaly, and they had gigantic jaws, and, and then one came at me. Kill one and two take its place. This is the endless onslaught of them clawing up out of the earth from mile-deep catacombs. See them! The most astounding journey into terror ever taken. Starring James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, Joan Weldon, and James Arness. Them! All right, let's talk a little bit more about Robert E. Howard. Okay. So he lived a very short life. When you look at his output, it's hard to believe that he was only here for, what, 30 years? Yeah, I believe so. It's insane the amount of work he put out there. And... A lot of his stuff, mostly his fantasy stuff, would get adapted and picked up either as a film. There was a Conan the Barbarian television show. Hmm. There was a theme park attraction. Uh, <laughs> Several cartoons. Yeah, a couple of cartoons. Tons of Marvel comics. Uh, and, and Dark Horse, too, would pick up the license there for a while. And I think I've got some other independently produced Howard stuff, but it's usually of the fantasy or sword and sorcery vein. I feel like a lot of times his horror fiction, which is just as good, if not better, doesn't get a lot of attention. Yeah. I love Pigeons from Hell. My favorite Howard story is The Black Stone, but Pigeons from Hell is really good too. And, and it's odd to me that there wasn't more Howard stuff out there. There's Clark Ashton Smith episodes of Night Gallery. Lovecraft gets referenced all the time in Night Gallery. And I mean, and you were talking about Robert Block in Star Trek. He always mentioned like the outer ones or the other ones or the older gods or whatever. But Howard doesn't get that kind of reverence until recently, which is too bad. And I don't know this for a fact. And, and I'm just talking out loud. And you'll probably get all these comments saying why I was wrong on this one. I wonder if it was something because of the stigma of how he died. If maybe that was a reason why Hollywood didn't take to him until way after his death, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. I, I was actually, as I was saying that, it occurred to me, well, he did commit suicide. So 
there might have been some stigma there. Plus, like I was saying earlier, the only biographical work out there was really Elsprog de Camp's book, yeah. uh, Dark Valley Destiny. And it doesn't paint the most flattering picture of the man. Plus, if you look at how the rights kind of worked out and his father was in charge of a lot of the works for a while and then it went off to somebody else and somebody else and there's a lot of contention about who really owns what these days. Uh, there's trademarks, there's public domain stuff, stuff that wasn't published until after the 50s and then it's a mess. Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to say. Yeah, so that makes sense. Uh, Pigeons from Hell was not published during Howard's lifetime. It didn't get published until after he passed, almost two years after he passed, I think. May 1938, so yes, two years. And that's the thing is that Howard... And I don't know if there's anything still out there, but for a long time, for years and years and years, there was new Howard stuff being discovered. This guy wrote non-stop. I have a book on my shelf called The Last of the Trunk that was put out by the Robert E. Howard Press Association or whatever they're called. And it's supposed to be like the final fragments of everything that he ever wrote. It was found in a trunk somewhere. They cleaned it up, put it out in a book. Now, of course, this book came out years ago and there's been more stuff since. So <laughs> even then, that wasn't the last, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Howard also has a special place in my heart because I was the first person to adapt a Robert E. Howard short story as a short film for mm. the Lovecraft Film Festival. I did an adaptation of Casanetto's Last Song, which is one of his contemporary horror stories. It was not published until many years after he passed, so it was not in the public domain. I had to get permission to do it. Unfortunately, I don't have a copy of it anymore, and that bugs me so much. I had so many technical problems with my computer editing it, mm. and since then I've had so many hard drive failures, I, I don't have a copy. So on the off chance anybody out there has a copy of my short film, Casanetto's Last Song, hit me up. Uh, it's not an award winner by any means, but I had a lot of fun bringing Howard to life in a different way. Well, hopefully someone has that. Somebody's got to have it. I know I gave copies of it to many people that were involved with it. And I've reached out to a handful of them as well. And they have similar stories where they had a flood or they lost it somewhere along the way, that sort of thing. I've even contacted the then director of the HP Lovecraft Film Festival to see if he had a copy. Because for a while, he was just, he had all the submissions from over the years. And when he slimmed down, he must have let it go as well. But I did do it. it, it it's out there somewhere. And there are clips of it in the lead actor's demo reel. <laughs> so there's a couple shots of it. it. We actually shot it in the Hollywood theater itself, Ooh. which I kind of cheated a little bit. I really wanted it to get accepted into the Lovecraft film festival. So I intentionally chose a location to shoot it in. That was familiar <laughs> to everybody. That was a plus. Yeah, it was a bonus. You know, it was in the Hollywood Theater, which is where the Lovecraft Film Festival takes place. Also, the then director of the Lovecraft Film Festival, I cast as an extra as one of the random cultists. So I made sure, you know, I was hedging my bets to make sure the movie could get accepted. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just there's something about it, you know? There's just something about his horror stories. I love the Black Stone. People in the Darkness. Oh, that one's good too. Yeah. Looking over at my shelf right now, I have three or four shelves just filled with Howard paperbacks, you know, doubled up or double deep. And anyway, Pigeons from Hell. Let's talk a little bit about the story itself. In the story, you were saying something very interesting about what the characters or who the characters could have been. It's no surprise to anybody who really reads Lovecraft to know that he kind of inserted himself into his work a little bit. You know, not just his beliefs about other people and, and the world, but there was specifically a very 
specific character that you can look at and say, yep, that's Lovecraft's avatar. Randolph Carter. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't really see a lot of that in Howard. I saw aspects of Howard in Conan. I saw aspects of Howard in Sailor Steve Costigan. I saw aspects of Howard in all these different things. But you brought up a really interesting point about one of the characters. Well, actually, both characters in Pigeons from Hell. And I'm going to let you take it away, man. Yeah, so it's Sheriff Buckner. Now, there's a Kirby Buckner that appears in another contemporary story. And there's some others that, that the narrator is never named. It's first person. And it's probably the same one. And when I first read this, I forgot the name of the, the actor here. I love his portrayal, but it was completely different than the way I saw him reading it in the short story. He came off very much as a cowboy. In the, as the short story, he had a, a cowboy hat. Uh, he was riding a horse when we first see him. You know, he has a, a six shooter and he's described as being stock and dark hair. And, and I really do believe that at least the appearance and a lot of that is not only Robert E. Howard, it's who Robert E. Howard wanted to be. I could totally see that. Now, the actor who played that role in the television episode, his name was Cran or Cran Denton. And he had a, a pretty decent career, did a lot of television a lot of TV, but he did some film work as well. You know, you look over his filmography and I mean, it's all over the place. He did everything from uh, things like the parent trap and to kill a mockingbird he appears in, but he also did Tom Corbett space cadet. So, I mean, he was all over the place. He was a working actor. And I think he did a great job, but he got a different interpretation than I got from when I read the book. And the same thing with Criswell, who is one of the travelers there who runs into the sheriff. He's a tall, lanky New Englander who likes to travel. And that reminds me of, of Lovecraft. Sure does. That's what Lovecraft did. He, he liked to kind of explore other areas and, and go on these walks. For being as much of a xenophobe as he was, he sure did like to go other places. Yeah. I did not pick up on that when I read the story the first time, and in, even in multiple readings. But now I can't help but see it, especially with the sheriff. I think there's five stories that can be tied to him. But if this was something that maybe Howard thought maybe he was going to expand on more, I could definitely see this being a, uh, an author avatar. Oh, sure. And I love that idea, of course. You know, I love the idea of a normal guy. You know, maybe he's government, maybe he's law enforcement, and he has to deal with these supernatural things that are happening around him. And I just love that character archetype anyway. So to see that here really thrilled me. I was pretty happy about that. And then another sort of uh, Howard tie-in is he learns about these things from sitting on the porch sharing stories just like Howard did. I think they really were cut from the same cloth even though their upbringings were very different. And if you read a lot of their letters back and forth, they disagreed about a lot of things. Yeah. But in terms of what they consumed in terms of like, I'd say media, but back then it was really just fiction and storytelling. In terms of that, they really, I think, could have done more together. They never had a chance to meet. I'd be real interested to see how that meeting would have gone. It would have been fascinating because I know Howard met a lot of people in his area and Lovecraft met a lot of people in his area, you know, the writers and that sort of thing. But because one of them couldn't afford bus fare, they never had a chance to meet in person. Yeah. That would have been fascinating to see. Oh, definitely. Uh, you said earlier, before we started recording, that this doesn't necessarily feel like a standalone, that there are some other stories that take place of this type. Yes, and the most famous, and this has uh, Kirby Buckner, who 
I have no reason to doubt is Sarah Fechner, but it could be a family member. And that black came in. There was also Shadow of the Beast, which is told by a first-person narrator who is probably Kirby. And then there's a couple more that I've heard, but I've not been able to track down. And that's a me, Moon of Zimbabwe, or Zimbabwe, I can never pronounce that word, and Black Hound of Death. So the Zimbabwe, or the Zimbabwe, which we find out is the monster at the end, that is a Howard-created work. It is often now used to be a female zombie, but it was a term created by Robert E. Howard. There you go. Contributing to the uh, popular culture again, right? Yes. And these stories take place in sort of a, an area that I've actually been in when I was younger. It's the yeah? Arkansas-Louisiana-Texas border. Uh, it covers things like Texarkana, New Boston, Texas, Monroe, Louisiana, Rayville, Louisiana, El Dorado, or El Dorado, um, Arkansas, uh, Fordyce, Arkansas. And, and I could really see if he had gone more with this, this would have been Robert E. Howard's Miskatonic Valley. And yes, I have been out in those woods at night, and they are creepy, and it is dark, and there are a lot of animals. So that is a perfect setting because it's got both the West, but it's still got some of this decadent Faulkner South. So that's an amazing setting for him to use. It's rich with Gothic kind of overhanging mood, but it is definitely its own thing. Uh, it is regional horror. Yeah. And I would have loved to have seen more stories. So now I want to see a, a series of stories with Buckner, you know, Sheriff Buckner doing all this stuff, you know, always not really believing it at first, but for whatever reason decides he's going to believe what he's up against. And yeah, I just want to read more Buckner stories now. And I, I think that character might be up for grabs. That character might be in the public domain. So yeah. like, I need something else to consider writing, but still. Now, something that I saw here when I was in the South, so it's now starlings. But when I was in the South, you would see starlings migrating, and it would literally be this line of birds going from horizon to horizon. And you would see it for about 30 minutes until it would end. And my understanding, and I don't know about that area, but until like the passenger pigeon died off, that it used to be like that with pigeons. But I could imagine seeing these, I mean, pigeons are much bigger, louder birds than starlings. But I'm sitting here watching this horizon to horizon. It almost looks like a rainbow bird flying over you. And I'm in awe of it. And I can imagine if that was pigeons, yes, why you would immediately attach something supernatural to them. Even in the, at least the thriller episode, and I believe it's like this in the, in the short story as well, as soon as the surviving person <laughs> tells Buckner about the pigeons. Pigeons? Where did you see pigeons? There, there seems to be this, like, oh, well, that's not good. Even though, really, they're just birds, but there's this attachment to them that makes them more than that. They're pigeons from hell. They're, they're, there's a supernatural marker or beacon of some sort. And when they come back to the house, you know, there's the birds on the car, and the pigeons on the car. You know, they've returned. They're not talking about the pigeons. They're talking about the, the, the Bluffendale family. I like the idea of 
you know, the pigeons being this harbinger, this symbol of some bad juju. <laughs> and, and, you know, even today, pigeons out of hell. Yeah. You know, which I think they said as much as, you know, bats out of hell. I think that was the original saying. It's just, man, I, I'm going to fanboy all over this. So I'm trying to get back on track here. Okay. We should probably talk about the show. So, yeah, it went to television. It went to the, the TV show Thriller. Now, listeners, if you don't know what Thriller is, you are in for some great television viewing. Thriller is one of these anthology shows. It was a thriller. It was scary. It was horror stuff. It was in the vein of Alfred Hitchcock, but a little bit more supernatural, really kind of gothic horror flavored. And it was introduced and hosted by Boris Karloff. I mean, what more do you want? He does an amazing job. Oh, he's great. I love the way he's introduced in this particular episode, too. He's just hanging out there in the swamp, you know, <laughs> watching everything happen. And then the camera pans away from the action and goes to him. And he's like, oh, I can't remember the lines, but he says some pretty foreboding stuff. And rightfully so, Rod Serling gets all this credit, but he's blown away in this. I think so, too. And there's something very interesting here about this episode in that Karloff introducing this story is not the only we're going to have a narrator introduce an anthology connection to this and that this episode is directed by John Newland, the man behind one step beyond. I didn't realize that until I watched it for this recording. Don't know why the director didn't really sink in, but that's John Newland. And if you haven't seen one step beyond listeners, you're in for some great television viewing <laughs> and it's in the public domain. So you should be able to get your hands on it pretty easily. I knew that Newland did it and that's more than I know about it. I think I saw some of the episodes when I was much younger but they've all kind of blurred together. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the 50s, and a lot of these episodes would star a lot of big names. I mean, one of my favorite episodes, Julie Adams in it, of course. You know, I love that episode. And I also try to show episodes of One Step Beyond during the streamings that I do. Just because it's great stuff. You know, short, little awesome stories in 20, 30-minute chunks. Mm -hmm. And to have him directing this episode, where he's got nearly a full hour of television to fill... That's pretty cool. And, and I will say one thing about this that I, I love the lights in this. It's almost oh, directed man. like a, a, play, a stage play. And if this was done in color, it would not be as powerful as it is. Just the darkness, the light, that, that is amazing. I agree. It is shot in such a way that Man, you feel those shadows clinging to you while you watch it. The cinematography in this by Lionel Linden, who I know nothing about, is as important to the story as anything else. He got it. He got it. And it's it's moody and affecting in just the right way. So good. You know, the direction, the cinematography. And now they did make some changes to the story. And we were talking again a little bit about this before we started recording. Instead of two friends, it's two brothers now going on this sightseeing adventure, looking at old houses, old architecture. So instead of Griswell, you've got Timothy and then Johnny. Was it Johnny or Timothy they traded out? Either way, it's Timothy and Johnny now, as opposed to uh, Griswell and the other guy. So what I'm thinking is that the main thing is, that Criswell or, or Timothy, whatever the character, the main thing is he's going to go back to the most scary thing that ever happened to him. And I think that part of it was because Rory Howard, he, he would do that. He and his platonic friends, they would go out and they would travel 
and they would have adventures. And if something terrible happened and it was horrible, absolutely Robert Lee Howard would have gone back into that firefight or whatever it was or that, that zombie-filled house. And sure. I think, though, for a 1960s TV audience, maybe we had to make the connection a little closer, that, that it had to be more than that platonic friendship, that, you know, he's coming back for his brother. And I think that that makes made more sense from a storytelling point of view. Plus, and, you know, I brought this up, and I, I still don't know if you're totally on board with what I'm saying here, <laughs> David, but I feel like also if they didn't establish that they're two dudes that happen to be brothers as opposed to, you know, a same-sex relationship, which is not something put on television in the 60s, they had to put something in there, right? I, mean, I think that that could have been a concern. I could see some Hollywood exec being bothered by it. Yeah, which isn't right, of course, but it's what happened back then. Now, I like the change, too. I like the two brothers. It really gives um, Timothy not necessarily an arc, but something that he really has to fight against to even go back to the house. Yeah. I mean, he just saw his brother get killed in a weird way. It's not just he found his brother's dead body. His brother's dead body's up walking around with a hatchet that was used to kill Johnny. It's pretty spooky. It's weird in a, in a capital W way. Absolutely. So not only does he have this motivation to go back, he has this legitimate loss that he's dealing with too. Which I think makes the accusations from Sheriff Buckner even more damning. You killed your brother. No, here's my brother. Why would I kill my brother? You know, as opposed to, you know, just killed a buddy of yours. I feel like that makes it even worse. You know, you kill a family member, that sort of thing. Now, obviously, he didn't kill him or whatever, but Sheriff Buckner does accuse him of doing that. And he was up and walking around in his sleep, and he killed him by accident, or he went after his brother. And Timothy says the best thing that you can say in a situation like this. If I killed my brother, wouldn't I make up a better story than he came back to, from the dead to try to kill me? Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I know, and not that I'm planning on it, but if I was ever committing a crime and I got caught and I wanted to lie my way out of it, I probably wouldn't bring up The Walking Dead. Yeah. Just saying. Exactly. <laughs> They'd lock me up somewhere else other than a jail cell at that point. You know, I was going to say also that, that fact that they're family, that brings it a little bit more to that Southern Faulkner tradition, too. That's true. It's very Faulkner-esque in how the original story is constructed. There's a lot of influence there you can see. I do like that Sheriff Buckner does eventually, pretty quickly actually, come around to, well, I guess we're going to go back to the house and explore because if you're insisting this happened, well, maybe it did. Here, hold the lantern. And they do some pretty cool stuff with that lantern too. Yeah, and like that a lot. No, absolutely. And the, the nuance is when he plays the character, or just the way his face looks when he's listening, you can see that he's weighing in the evidence. Yeah, it's not just a flat-out dismissal like, oh, you dumb kids, what did you do? You know, it's, There's a real investigative streak to what he's doing, how he's portrayed here, and I like that a lot. I like the acting in this quite a bit, even though uh, Brandon DeWilde, who played Timothy, doesn't get a chance to do much other than look scared almost all the time, mm -hmm. but I still like it. Do you want to talk too much more about the story? I mean, it's it's an interesting setup. There's some weird voodoo-like stuff happening out here. Is there anything else you think we should mention here? You've got this antebellum mansion and where a murder takes place. 
But you not only have now the brother and brother relationship, but you also have the family that lived there before. This whole idea that evil can exist in a place after the evil people die is just that that is a trope that that Howard dug and he could really work with. This is a haunted house story. I mean, amongst everything else that it is, this is a haunted house. There are some evil things happening here. And the evil things that were done here by people infected this place, just seeped into it. I, I certainly see a lot of haunted house trappings in here, is this the, the which ghost, is, again, something Stephen King was good at. So, <laughs> the, the ghosts are more physical than we're used to. They're more tangible than we're used yeah. to. Yeah. Uh, this is a zombie story, sort of. So, yeah, sure. You're right. I, it's sort of, as spiritually, it's a ghost story. In addition to everything else that it is. It's, it's not just, hey... Haunted House. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that. Like you said, the, the threats are a little bit more physical. It's basically a zombie story. This is something I could have covered on Mail Order Zombie back in the day mm-hmm. and probably would have given it its highest rating possible because I love this episode. So it's one of my favorite thriller episodes. It absolutely survives the test of time. It is very timely in the fact that they're clothing and the car and the black and white, but it's still absolutely even though it's period, it absolutely is. It's timeless. It is a timeless story. I think so too. Um, I, I absolutely could believe if somebody told me, Hey, there's a cabin like that down here in Louisiana, uh, that, that I I've gone to. And you know, they, they talk about this story that happened at this old plantation, uh, a couple of years ago. I totally believe it. Totally believe it. Uh, there is one other thing that I wanted to mention actually the makeup. I used to do special makeup effects. I love makeup, right? I love special monster effects. I love that stuff. There is a close-up of her hand, Eula Lee's hand, that looks phenomenal. Absolutely. And I love how it starts out out of focus. They do a really good job of kind of hiding a little bit the effect of uh, Johnny's head being split open by the axe or the hatchet which is what happens in the story. You don't see brains falling out and a lot of blood. You see some blood on the hatchet. You see a little bit of dark stuff on his face, but most of it's hidden in shadow and it's very effective. But when you meet Eula Lee, who, you know what? Count Dracula gave the spoiler. She's the Zuvembi, okay, <laughs> of the story. Uh, and the way she looks, her face looks great. Her character design is great, but that hand... It's like if you took Elmer's glue and rubbed it all over your hands and then let it dry and then just slowly started picking away at it so it looks like your skin is kind of flaking off or flaying off. It's like that, but 10 times better. And the fingernails look like they could pop off at any moment because it's just that old and that desiccated. It looks so good. The fact that it was, I mean, it was done in 1961 too. Yeah, so this predates Romero. So at this point, zombies are are voodoo or conjured by magic, which is actually my preferred style of zombie. So it speaks to me on that level too. Uh, So you don't have them running around brains or whatever. You know, they're just the walking dead. And at one point, Timothy even gets charmed, enchanted, possessed. He hits his head and starts walking around like he's going to go do something. It's spooky. It is spooky and scary and that anybody is that vulnerable to be taken over by whatever presence is in this house. It's scary. Yes. Uh, and it kind of also that Buckner was able to resist it. 
that kind of is, again, that, that folk trope of the sheriff full of common sense that he's able to overcome the magic because he's got a better idea of what it's new to him, but he, he's got a better idea of what he's getting into. Yeah, and I wondered if that's a little bit of Lovecraft's influence on Howard's writing at this point. I don't know where they were in their relationship when he actually wrote the story to begin with. But in Howard's world, the more you know, the worse off you are. So <laughs> uh, if you're a, a book-learning, well-educated college kid, you're in trouble in Lovecraft's world. Whereas in Howard's world, if you're a little – I mean, that might be the same here too, but the heroes are the ones that are more blue-collar. Yeah. You know, more common sense driven, like you said. That's why I like Buckner so much. You know, we can nitpick all the different changes. I think there was, but 80% of the story is very faithful. Yes. They shorten it instead of two days, you know, it takes place in one night. But, you know, you got to do that for television. Yeah. It's a faithful retelling. I think so, too. They did eliminate some of the racial issues that the short story had. And, and I don't necessarily want to get into that. I mean, I, I will say, and, and I think David, you agree with me. There's no time and place for that here. Now it, it shouldn't have been there to begin with, but Howard did grow up in a small oil town that blew up once oil was discovered and his upbringing did not necessarily make him the most tolerant of various people of other skin colors. Just say that. No, but he was actually more tolerant than a lot of others. And I mean, that's not a defense. He was. Yeah, he has some very interesting African-American characters. But you're right. There are some things that that just aren't, we don't need now. I wasn't able to reread the short story in its entirety before we started recording. But what I did reread, I'm reading it and then I realized, oh, with everything that's happening in the world right now, is this something we want to talk about? And and we're not going to get political here on the show. Just... Racism bad, I think is pretty much what we want to say here. That, that should be the least political statement out there. I, I would hope so. There should be no politics. I would hope so. There should be no politics with that statement. Now, I want to comment a little bit on the screenwriter here. It was, the teleplay was written by a guy by the name of John Newbel, I believe is how you pronounce it. Now, I don't know anything about this guy uh, other than he's written a couple of things that we've covered here on the show. He has written The Screaming Skull which has some kind of spooky stuff happening in it as well, uh, in an isolated place, a big house. I mean, there you go. That's what we're seeing here too, right? Mm -hmm. He also wrote an episode of Star Trek and was uncredited. He wrote the Bread and Circuses episode of Star Trek. Oh, I did not know that. He was involved with that. Oh, and I'm sorry. He also wrote Two on a Guillotine, which has absolutely nothing to do with a big isolated house out in the middle of nowhere where spooky things are happening. But I guess it does take place in a big house, so there is that. But yeah, I'd like to know more about this guy. His background, he was an American Samoan. So he brought this kind of different take to, I don't know, how death is portrayed in stories and that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, He really relied on his multicultural background for a lot of his work, apparently. Like I said, I don't know much about the guy. I'm, I'm skimmed a little bit on Wikipedia and Blackgate's website and a few other places. Uh, he grew up in Hawaii uh, and it seems like an interesting guy. I'd like to learn more about him. And now that I know he's got a Star Trek connection, I'd like to know even more. Definitely. Now we said here that this was not the only time this was adapted. It was adapted by multiple radio stations. I have a recording from the local radio station KBOO here where they did an adaptation or a reading of it, uh, which is pretty cool. 
I'm sure it's been done a few other times as well, but it's been adapted as at least two different comic books that you were mentioning earlier before yeah. we started recording. So it was done in two comic books. So the first one was in 1988, and it's by Scott Hampton. And it's out of print, but I was able to find an anthology that had it. But for some reason, all the dialogue was taken out. So... You know, the art was great, and the art was exactly how you know I thought the characters would look and the house would look. But for some reason, at least the anthology that I was able to read it in, the dialogue, it was just the balloons. The word balloons were there. Then uh, Joe Lansdale did it for Dark Horse in 2008, and it's a modern adaptation, which Amazon is supposed to bring my copy in a couple of weeks. So we've done this a couple of weeks later. I could have told you a little bit more. But I do know it's two sisters. <laughs> so instead of two brothers or two friends, it's two sisters who are inheriting the house. And I am told oh. that it changes the story. It, it's, it plays with the story, but keeps the spirit the same. And instead of just the two, they actually have three friends come with them. So instead of two, it's five people. And it's, it's the, the two sisters that are basically inheriting the house. I haven't read it myself, but the reviews, people have liked it. And they admit that it's changing it, but it, it keeps the spirit of the story. That's interesting that Joe Lansdale was the man behind it, because if you could look at all the contemporary writers today and say, this is the guy that came from Howard Stock, Joe Lansdale is like the modern day Robert E. Howard when it comes to a lot of this. And he's from Texas too, isn't he? I think you're correct. If you don't see Howard in Joe Lansdale's work, I'm sorry, <laughs> you're missing out. Mm -hmm. uh, but Lansdale's another one of these guys who writes westerns, horror, science fiction, suspense stories. I mean, he wrote comic books. I mean, he's all over the place. He wrote some Batman the Animated Series. There's another Batman connection for you. Yeah. I, I'm actually excited about getting the book, but it, it, it got delayed, so I'll get it in about a week. I'm real curious to hear what you think of it. I've not read it. The, the art looks good. What I, what I see looks good. Well, let me know how it is. You know, I'll add it to my wish list if, it, if it's something I need to add to the Robert E. Howard collection I have around here. Have you heard the KBOO adaptation of the story? No, I have not. Listeners, I might find a way to make sure you guys and gals can get your hands on that. Check the show notes. I would love to hear it. What else do we want to say about Pigeons from Hell before we start wrapping up? Yeah, like I said, we can nitpick all the difference changes, and there are. But I think it's faithful. I think it's faithful to the spirit. I think it's faithful to the story, which you don't see a lot in stuff now. And if we're going to do one last sort of Lovecraft, uh, Howard illusion, I think this is kind of to Howard as Richard Stanley's Colorado space is to Lovecraft. Wow. That is high praise indeed. But now my brain just immediately cast Nick Cage as Buckner, and I don't know if I like that or not. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. Although I am curious. I was, I, I'm going to have to see if, if Buckner... I mean, yes, there are some things, but I would love Buckner to be in public domain. We'll do some research. Some ideas are forming in my head right now, in fact. So to get rid of the Nick Cage as Buckner image in my brain, I'm going to read a quote from the Blackgate website. Blackgate used to be a print magazine. They don't do the print magazine anymore. They are now strictly an online magazine. 
their their subtitles the adventures and fantasy literature i used to read blackgate all the time and in 2009 ryan harvey posted an article there called my favorite robert e howard stories pigeons from hell and he wraps up his article by saying this and i agree with him 100 percent Pigeons from Hell does what many great supernatural horror stories do. It shocks us with fear of the unknown and the appearance of the impossible, but digs its claws into deeper fears and anxieties about our world beyond the page. It's a masterful performance. Dude, he nailed it. I think that's perfect. If people want to hear more of you, you got the podcast. And do you still update your website as well? I should. Uh, I will. I will. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, so I started, I've, I've returned to things where I'm writing down a fact of a day. And so I'll have that at the end of the month. And I've, I've got a bunch of other things. Uh, I'm kind of like everyone else fighting over this doldrums, but uh, I need to get out of it. And so uh, Dave's Corner of the Universe, and there haven't been a lot of updates in the last couple of months, but uh, I'm going to get back. Dave's Corner of the Universe dot WordPress dot com, or just look it up on Google. It's the first thing that came up when I just typed it in. Uh, and there is a review here, it looks like, that you posted about Color Out of Space uh, earlier this year. So to yeah. kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier. Go and check that out again. I'll make sure there are links in the show notes. And if you do follow Dave on Facebook, he posts a picture of a goat a day, and it's delightful. It's the little things that keep me going. A couple of things. I feel kind of bad. I feel like maybe I dominated the conversation because I just get so excited about Robert E. Howard and I don't get a chance to talk about Howard very often on any of my podcasts. I did include a little throwback to a previous podcast of mine in there. I hope longtime listeners of everything that I've done in the past enjoyed that. And Dave has made some changes. Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans is still there, and the episode, the Star Trek episode he talked about, is still there as well. However, I know that since he recorded this with me, he and D.B. Spitzer of the People's Guide of the Cthulhu Mythos and Black Clock Audio have been working feverishly to put something special together. Everything that I know, which isn't a lot, is getting me very, very excited about what they're going to be doing. It's going to be a podcast about media and pop culture and all of that but it's going to be a little bit more too and i think it's going to be special so follow along with dave and db spitzer over at the people's guide to the cthulhu mythos website that's pgttcm.com i'll make sure there's a link in the show notes you can also follow up with dave at dave's corner of the universe.wordpress.com david next time i have you on i'm sure we'll talk about howard because that's just what happens but let's find a movie that uh Oh, heck. Let's just talk Howard some more. Greetings, listeners. It is I, D.B. Spitzer, beckoning you closer to the people's guide to the Cthulhu mythos. Learn of terrible meetings in lonely places, of cyclopean ruins in which vast staircases lead down to abysses, of knighted secrets, of complex angles that leap through invisible walls to other regions of space and time, and of hideous explorations in remote and forbidden places. This is an exploration of the Cthulhu mythos, pgttcm.com, darkmyths.org, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you find your podcasts. Suddenly, a man dies at the controls of a train. Suddenly, a car swerves to destruction. Suddenly, a plane dives to death. 
the earth dies screaming. Suddenly, death descends on the four corners of the earth, and only a handful of human beings survive to live in fear, powerless to combat an unknown terror. Turn it off. Who are you? That away, I'm not the enemy. I don't know who the enemy is. Earth dies screaming, and the robots take over. Starring Willard Parker, Virginia Field, Dennis Price, You said that she was dead. She was. She was alive enough tonight, except her eyes. Well, what was the matter with them? She hasn't got any eyes. Here is paralyzing suspense as the Earth dies screaming. Electrifying terror as the Earth dies screaming. Jeff! Peggy! Peggy! The robots! What? Peggy! That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you so much for sticking around, being part of the show, listening to what we do here, retweeting tweets, sharing posts on Facebook, letting people know on Instagram, tattooing the Monster Kid Radio logo into your forehead. Whatever it is you do to support the show, I appreciate it. But if you did tattoo the logo on your forehead, picture it didn't happen, bro. Just saying. Anyway, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to find everything you need to know about the podcast. Our contact information is over there. Links to everything that we've talked about here on the show are over there, including the link to Dave's Corner of the Universe. All those Amazon affiliate links that'll take you to all things Robert E. Howard. It's all there, including a message letting you know what's coming up next week. We have an interview coming up with a friend of mine by the name of Rob Hampton. Rob is one of the filmmakers behind the documentary Super 8 Days. Days being spelled D-A-Z-E. This is really exciting for me because one of the things that I love about old issues of Famous Monsters of Filmland or Castle of Frankenstein or any of those old magazines from back in the day, a lot of times they would feature these student filmmakers, these monster kids making these backyard epics, that sort of thing. And, you know, what I wouldn't do to get my hands on some of that stuff, just to check it out, see what it's like, you know? Well... Rob has made some of this material available. We showed his Super 8 Days documentary on the Saturday stream. And this weekend, we're going to be showing two of his short films as well. One based on King Kong and one based on, well, you know what? I haven't decided yet, but he's got a handful over at his website as well as his Vimeo page. We'll talk a little bit about that next week when he's here on the show. Also, check this out. If you want to do your homework ahead of time, Super 8 Days is now available to stream on Amazon Prime. The documentary is only 15 minutes long, but it's going to fill you with hours of joy. I guarantee it. So go check that out. Just make sure you come back here next week to hear the interview with Rob.
Saturday is the big Monster Kid Movie Club stream, screen, scream, whatever. Just head over to monsterkidmovie.club to join us at 11 a.m. Pacific for the pre-show noon-ish Pacific for the movies. There's a live chat that goes on the entire day. It's a lot of fun. Also pay attention to Facebook because I'll be putting together an event page for this weekend's screening, streaming, screamings. I'd love to invite you to come along. Join the fun. Stay for one movie or stay for the whole thing. Otherwise, check back at the stream on Tuesday for the Monster Kid Astronomy Club or just come back next week for the next episode of Monster Kid Radio. Between now and whenever, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Grabbed by the Ghoulies. That is copyright 2020, The Underwater Bosses. You can find them at underwaterbosses.com, underwaterbosses.bandcamp.com. They're even on Amazon. Just look them up. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 